Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Sinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. Hey, Rachel, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, no problem. Happy to talk. How have you been doing in your quarantine? What are you reading? What are you baking? <laughs> what your weird hobbies have you picked up? <laughs> I've always been into embroidery, but I've gotten really into embroidery since being in quarantine. So that's one what are you thing. making? I do a lot of flowers, a lot of floral stuff is what I really like to embroider. So that's been very calming. I find that I can't focus on TV if I'm not doing something with my hands and I would rather be embroidering than on my phone and on the TV. So what are you reading right now? So I just finished the new Casey McQuiston novel that comes out next year that I'm super excited about. It's called One Last Stop. And so that's something really fun. And then I'm reading our big book of the fall, which is Swoon Reads' big book, which is Cemetery Boys by Aidan Thomas. And I'm really excited for that one as well. Tell us a little about it. So it is about a trans Latinx boy who comes from a long line of brujos or witches. And he is trying to prove to his family that even though he is trans, he is obviously still a brujo. And things go a little bit awry and he ends up with a spirit on his hands named Julian, who he is trying to get rid of until maybe he doesn't want to get rid of him because he's too cute. (laughs) That sounds amazing. I love that. (laughs) It's so fun. Oh my goodness. And Swoon does a lot of amazing books. Can you tell us a little about how, like where you guys focus and what kind of books you usually yeah. take on? So the kind of books that we usually, we typically do YA of all genres. Um, so we're pretty open. We do a lot of contemporary YA. I'm working on a sort of contemporary fantasy YA, but our focus is on trying to get as many underrepresented um, and marginalized voices out there as we possibly can. So yeah. That's wonderful. Oh, how did you get started in publishing? And is that, I mean, you've worked in a lot of places in Macmillan, right? I think we talked about how it's like a big H now and very cold. Did, yeah. they, did they fix the air conditioner? Uh, well, at this point, I honestly don't remember because I haven't <laughs> been in the office for two months, but I do think in the mornings it was much better. And then by the afternoon, it was sort of freezing again. Yeah. So where did you, where did you work with in Macmillan before this and what it's, what's all yeah, that been so like? I actually started out my very first publishing job. My first like trade publishing job um, was as an intern for Soon Reads actually. So I'm back right where I started. So I worked that internship for two semesters and partway through um, the second semester, I started looking for uh, full-time jobs, and there wasn't one open at Macmillan Children's at the time, so I took a job as um, an editorial assistant at St. Martin's Press. So I worked at St. Martin's Press for two years, and then last summer, something opened back up at MCPG, and my current boss reached out for me and reached out to me and wondered if I wanted to take it, and I was very excited to go back to kids' publishing. And that's Macmillan Children's Publishing Group, right? Yes, that's Macmillan Children's Publishing Group, for which I work specifically for Fiewell and Friends and also for Swoon Reads, which is within Fiewell and Friends. It's sort of like those Matryoshka Russian dolls. (laughs) Every imprint stacks in another imprint. 
That's a good way to describe it. And I think it's interesting because when I was starting out as an agent and sending out my first submissions, I didn't understand the rules about how you can be in separate imprints, but still be people who work together. So you're not allowed to send (laughs) two different people who are in the same reading group, but a different imprint. And yeah, I mean, it's complicated even for people in publishing sometimes. I I do honestly feel like I need to draw a diagram (laughs) because I feel so bad for that exact reason. And it's like, in some houses you can submit to different things and in some houses you can't. And so it's all very complicated, but I really gosh, wish someone would like bad dating. It really does. To me, it seems like that graph of the six degrees of Kevin Bacon, but someone needs to make it for publishing. Cause it's like, okay, these people work together, but these people are in our reading group and these people aren't even at the same publishing house, but they're in the same dinner club. So, <laughs> Oh my gosh. Absolutely. Uh, Rachel, you said on your manuscript wish list that you're looking for, a unique voice, a great hook, and great characters. So can you just dive into that a little bit? How do you know when you find a great voice and how do you know when you have a great hook? So I feel like voice is one of those things that is the most important to me personally and the hardest to define, um, which is not the most helpful. But to me, I know that I've got a great voice when it feels like something that I've never read before, but also like someone I maybe have met in real life. So it feels authentic. I love that. Yeah. So authentic and fresh and original, but also realistic. And so that's sort of what I look for in voice. I feel like it's particularly difficult to find an amazing voice in middle grade, just because we're all a little bit more distant from being 12 than we are from being 17. But it can really make or break a good middle grade novel for me. So what would you do in an alternate universe with no publishing? So this is something that I think about a lot, and I have a very interesting answer, which is that I actually really love sort of geosciences, which is very random. Um, I think the thing that turned me away from studying that, other than, of course, wanting to be in books, is physics (laughs) and having to take and pass physics. But in an alternate reality, if there was no publishing, I feel like maybe I would have pushed through and done some really cool, like, geology. What would that look like on a day-to-day basis? I feel like I probably would have followed in the footsteps of my parents and just gone the full PhD route and ended up being a professor. So a lot of research and a lot of managing undergrads is probably what it looks like on a day-to-day. Yeah, and cool field trips and, like... Good hiking, which is something that I love. Yeah, fossils. Yeah, (laughs) it sounds really interesting. Yeah. I love that. I love how, like, every time we come and we talk to people here, it's always, like, people are so unique, right? It's like, I would be a sushi chef and, or I will edit thrillers. I mean, it's like, people are so complex, and that's what makes this whole business so interesting. Yeah, you get a bunch of different kinds of people with sort of one thing that we all have in common. But I'm very surprised you went STEM. I think that's, you know, it's unusual for people in publishing to be like in favor of science and math. I mean, of course, we like it abstractly, yes. but. Yes. Well, as you, as I noted, I did not want to take physics. And so I didn't go that route. So there clearly was something in my way. Yeah. Not recommended. It's terrible. <laughs> no, I don't imagine that I would enjoy it. What's something you've changed your mind about in your time in the industry? So I think. One of the main things that I changed my mind about has happened pretty recently, like maybe within the last year or so, which is that when I was first starting out acquiring my own titles, I would go out 
on lunches with agents or even just on phone calls with people. And I would joke about how I was a baby editor. And that is something that I've sort of, you know, I did it as a defense mechanism because people would often ask me like, oh, what's on your list? And I would have to answer, well, nothing I haven't acquired yet. But now I, first of all, I have stuff on my list now, which I think gives me a little bit more confidence. But I've also sort of come to realize that being a baby editor is not a thing. Like you either are an editor or you aren't an editor and you should take your confidence in that and you are competent and you are capable and you do know how to do this job. And an editor that I used to work with once said to me when I called myself a baby editor, he said, just as you can walk into any hotel in New York and use the bathroom if you're confident enough, you can walk into any meeting and publishing and be an editor if you're confident enough. So... I love that. I think it's the same for writers too. People are like, well, I'm not really a writer. I'm really a lawyer. And I'm like, and we talked about this in our five day event and it was like, no, like don't say you're a stay at home mom. If you're having a query, say you're a writer. Yeah. If you write, you're a writer. If you edit, you're an editor. Right. Absolutely. And own it. Own that's what you're doing for that part of your life. I think it's so important. You know, I was getting kind of fascinated with your MSWL. I can't, I'm sorry, it just happens. And I was like looking at your the, the books that you really like. And then I loved how you had your favorite TV shows and movies that were just so light and fun, like Brooklyn 999. Did I add extra nine there? That's so funny. I was like, nine, 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 one, um, nine, Brooklyn nine, nine, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Parks Yay. and Rec. Uh, I know, so fun. And Shit's Creek, which is so fun. So do your tastes change from video to the written word? I feel like they don't change that much from video to the written word. The things that I enjoy on TV, I'm often looking for books that make me feel the same way that that TV show made me feel. So maybe the content isn't exactly the same or even the framing of the content isn't exactly the same, but I am looking for that same feeling that I get from watching those shows. So with comps, you don't mind if one of them is a video or a TV show? No, I personally don't mind at all if a comp, if you comp something too. I prefer to have one book in there as well, just to give me a little bit more context. But if you did something that was, you know, the hate you give meets Schitt's Creek or whatever, which would be quite the book, but something like that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't mind using other media as a comp. And meets Buffy. That'd be interesting, too. There you go. I like that one. I feel like that's the L.L. McKinney, um, A Blade So Black series is a little bit like that. What do you wish writers knew about things on our side of the desk? I wish mainly, and I'm sure this is true for being an agent as well, that they knew just how much time we do spend reading and considering and really thinking about the work that they send us, even if it's something that we end up turning down. Like I'm never turning anything down lightly. I'm always reading into it. I'm always considering it. I'm always imagining myself pitching it. Um, And so I want them to know that like we we do take things seriously and I do always want to respect the work that they've done, whether or not it's for me. I also think that sometimes if it's easy to pitch it in your head, that means it's ready. You know, like when you're, when you're working with an author on something and it's somebody you've worked with before. So they turn in a draft that's not the final draft and you keep working on it. And I feel like when you know exactly how to pitch it, that's when you know the editing is done. And I don't know why that's true, but is that true for you too? I do think that's true for me because it's, you know, it's such a thing to pitch something as an editor, you have to go up against, not go up against, but you have to present to the sales team and the money people and marketing and publicity. And you can have almost a hundred people in a room. And so 
my ability to imagine exactly how I would pitch something is really essential in choosing to acquire a project. Can you walk us through what it looks like when you pitch something? Yeah. So I think that every imprint obviously does it just a little bit differently, but at MCPG, we have a meeting once a week and we send out a written pitch, which is often slightly different from our sort of verbal pitch we'll give later and materials in advance so that everyone in the room can read a little bit. Obviously, they don't have time to read all thousand pages of reading that shows up at acquisitions every week, but we like to give a sample so that people know what they're getting into along with some numbers that we've run, some comp titles, a little bit of context for them as well. And so I go into the meeting with these materials ready and I pass those materials out to everyone, even though they've hopefully already read them. Yeah. And then I, you go through everyone on the list. So you could be first on the list and get to pitch right off the bat while the room is still light and happy and hasn't been sitting there for an hour. Um, <laughs> or you could be very last on the list and they've already had to talk through maybe a couple of difficult projects or had to tell someone that we they don't think that we should acquire something and everyone's a little bit down. And so it's, it's really dependent on the energy in the room. Um, but I always try and be happy and peppy and positive about all of my projects. So. so is everyone sales, marketing, publicity in the room at the same time or is it you have to do it over and over? We have everyone in the room at the same time. And so they sort of go through... Often sales will speak first and then followed by marketing and publicity. And then, you know, our president and our financial guy will weigh in at the end about the actual numbers. Um, and it, I would say that they all have fairly equal say. I do think that if one group loves something and another group is a little bit more mediocre on it, then you can, like, that extra positivity on the marketing side can win over sales who might have been a little bit more hesitant at the beginning. I think that's really optimistic, actually. <laughs> Maybe I'm just an optimist. <laughs> um, no, but I mean, in a, in a great way for writers, because I think a lot of writers think that if you don't have the numbers, even if you're writing fiction, you're doomed. And it sounds to me like that's just not the case. That's In my experience, that is not the case. If there is a real passion in the room on the marketing side or the publicity side, I do think that they can sway. They may not be able to sway the numbers enough to say if it's a competitive situation, win an auction, but they may be able to get you in there to bid when maybe they, based on sales alone, they wouldn't let you. From the writing side, people are always confused about what makes the numbers. Like you guys always talk about numbers, like, oh, the numbers. Well, like, oh yeah, the numbers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where, so like, how does that, is there, is, it, is a formula, correct? Yes. And I don't know all of the details of the formula because it's a lot fancier math than I personally know how to do. This is where we go back to me not wanting to take physics or calculus. So we have a form that has been pre-made by the financial team. And we fill in, essentially we fill in things like page, like projected page count and projected um, trim size on the book. And then based on comp titles that are already out um, in the world, we fill in projected sales numbers. And the, the form will do all the math for us and sort of spit out an acceptable range of numbers. And I am not sh quite sure all of the pieces of math that go into that, but yeah. 
From what I understand, every house has their own very secret math. And I was asking an editor once, um, I think it was Amanda She. I was asking her, hey, so just hypothetically, if I were to break into your office, you know, like through the vents, rappel down from the ceiling, open up a computer, <laughs> wouldn't I be able to find the math? And she's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> you would be able to find the spreadsheet, but I don't think that you would be able to decipher the math that went into because part of it is profit and loss. And part of it is trying to make margin on every book that we sell and all of those kinds of things. So, yeah, it's very secret. And it's in a sense, it's reassuring that editors don't know what the formula is either. Yeah, we, I mean, we know enough to try and manipulate it to be, to be both realistic and maybe a little bit optimistic because we want the book. Tell us about something that isn't nearly as scary or hopeless as writer's fear it is. Um, I would just say, honestly, the timeline for being on submission. I try and be very up to date on reading my submissions, but honestly, sometimes life gets in the way and I won't get to it for months. And I always feel terrible, but I never want someone to give up hope just because something has been on someone's desk for a while. And I know editors that are worse than I am about keeping up with their submissions for whatever reason. And so there's no, you know, you can be on submission with something for a year and still sell it. It's not the end of the line. Yeah, absolutely. And I've made offers on things I've had for a long time too. Yeah, exactly. We just, there's just a lot of things to do in the day and reading submissions always falls to the end of the list. I think that's such an important thing for people to hear because, I mean, that's one of the biggest questions we get here at the Manuscript Academy is, you know, when when do you get to reach back out to that agent again? And Mm -hmm. once you're in the next spot, how long does it take? And everyone just is so focused on the date where I wonder sometimes if it's just putting your energy into the next piece and trying to go with the flow. I mean, obviously with this COVID-19, yeah. I mean, they're definitely, we, we know that everyone's in such different places right now. Yeah. And so even more time and just kind of like, not as Americans, I think we're like, we want it now. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so just hearing that everyone, like we just need to deep breath, you know, and just let the work stand for itself once it's out there in the world. I think it's really important. And particularly now, it feels like I should have more free time to read since I'm working from home all of the time. But I also, some days, just am out of focus and I can't, you know, there's too much going on in the rest of the world. So it's a, yeah. it's a yeah, strange that's time. That's a question I wrote down for you, so I should ask it right now. Has your editing style changed now that you are at home every day? I don't know that my actual style of editing has changed. Um, I do manage to prioritize my own list a little bit more now that I'm working from home, now that I'm doing less of the sort of administrative day-to-day office tasks that I would usually be doing that are sort of taken away when you're working from your couch or and your boss is working from their couch and there's only so much that you can do administratively. Um, and so I feel like it has given me a little bit more time to try and prioritize my own projects. Um, and obviously the projects that I have already acquired come before submissions. So I don't know that I am on top of my submissions more than I was previously, but I think that I'm able to give a little bit more brain space to the works that I've already acquired. Do you think that this is going to change how publishing works? Or do you think when all of this is over, we're just going to go back to working in the office and requiring everyone? 
truly hope that it will change the way that publishing works. I, one of my least favorite things about publishing is the requirement that you have to live in New York City to work a traditional publishing job for one of the big five publishers. Obviously, that's less true of agents and less true of independent presses, but for the most part, if you want to work for one of the big five, especially in an editorial capacity, you have to live in New York. And I that's so limiting in so many ways, and it's so limiting for the kind of people that they are able to hire into entry-level positions. And now that we have proven that you can work from home effectively and there are systems in place to do so, I truly hope that it will lessen the requirement for people to be centralized in the city. Do you feel like everyone's getting about as much done? I definitely, I feel like many people I know are working more because it's so hard to separate yourself from the laptop at the end of the day. You know, you don't have a commute, so you don't have the subway to sort of distance yourself physically and emotionally. And when your commute is like from your bed to your desk, it's a lot easier to check your email at 7 p.m. or to keep working past five and all those kinds of things. So I'd say that we are definitely working an equal amount and some people are working more. The way you said it is interesting because it's almost like we're having social distance in terms of space, but not in terms of emotions. I completely, I think that's completely true, honestly. I've also learned it's a weird hack. You know, there are all these articles about what it's like to have your friend there and not there and your coworker there and not there at the same time and what your brain does with that. But I've noticed that if you prop up your phone at eye level, you can do a better job of fooling yourself into thinking that the other person is there. Interesting. Um, when you're on like a is. video call or something. Yeah. I've, you know, I've been talking with old friends who've, I've known since I was a kid and they've moved all over the country. And now suddenly we can be together as much as I can be together with anyone else. And yeah, there's something really interesting about how it seems to trick your brain. Cause that's the height they would be at if they were in person. Yeah. And I do find it really difficult when I'm on video calls on the phone to have to hold it. Yeah. <laughs> and so propping it up in any way would probably make it a better experience. This is the last question I prepared for you, and it's really random. I read that you're a dog person living with a cat, and I find in that age of quarantine, that is quite the discussion. <laughs> I have grown up with dogs my entire life. My parents, <laughs> yeah, my parents used to show dogs at like AKC level tournaments, and they were very into wow. it. Yeah, okay. and so mostly golden retrievers which is why they're my favorite kind of dog. <laughs> and so we've just always had dogs around the house. And I've had a very emotional connection to all of my dogs growing up. And now that I live in, you know, 500 square feet in Brooklyn, I don't feel that it's fair to either me or the dog to have one. But I still felt like I wanted animal companionship. And so my roommate and I adopted a cat from a rescue place in Brooklyn and I love him very much. <laughs> That's amazing. I feel like most creatives have an animal of some sort. You know, there's something very grounding about an animal in the house. There's something very grounding. And there's something particularly in these quarantine times about having a creature that depends on you to get up at a certain time every morning and to like be there to feed them at a certain time every night. And it gives your day a little bit more structure than it might mm-hmm. otherwise have. So there's so much more quiet than children. (laughs) (laughs) He is snugglier than a teenager. I will say. (laughs) Thank you. That was great.
That was my throwaway question for you, but I just I love that it. it was great. I love talking about my cat. So, so if you had Google level funding and the ability and courage and encouragement to spend twenty percent of your time making something, what would you make? I think that there needs to be some level of programming for entry level publishing people and yeah. for expanding that outside of New York City. There have been many attempts at this to varying degrees of success, obviously, and there are groups now that do a great job at this. But I just feel like with Google level funding, I could make this such a, a wider and more well-funded and get so many different groups of people that don't have access even to the things like POC and publishing that have done such great work. And so widening that net and developing some kind of support program, recruiting program, I would love to do things like financial and budgeting advice for entry-level people in publishing, that kind of thing. Work-life balance skills, how to work for... I mean, I've been very lucky that I've always had very good bosses in publishing, but there are obviously people who are less good at managing people. And so how to work for someone like that and all these things. I would love to have access to that kind of education. Well, I'd like to talk with you more about that because I've had some similar ideas and I bet we could cook something up. So that sounds we don't, perfect. We don't have Google level funding, but oh, if creative. only we did. <laughs> like Google, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's one of your early memories in New York City and in the industry? This is like a very basic New York City memory, but I remember the first fall that I lived here, my friend and I went for a walk in Brooklyn and we ended up. It was a beautiful October day. We ended up in Prospect Park, and then we ended up at the library, and there was an impromptu book sale that we didn't know was happening where all the books were a dollar. And so we, of course, bought like eight books that we didn't need but really wanted and then ended up at like a sliced pizza place, and we're just sitting there reading, and all the windows were open, and we were eating pizza. And it's just like one of my favorite fall memories from my early days in the city. Mm, so imagine being outside eating pizza at a restaurant sounds so lovely and and walking past a bookstore and seeing that book sitting there and and then walking around with it all day in anticipation of opening it up yep and ah i know it was wonderful i'm sorry i'm I'm like in the fantasy i'm like and then someone poured me coffee But yeah, as for early memories in the industry, my first full-time job, I about six months after I started, I think, we had a number two New York Times bestseller that I had worked on, which was very exciting. And so I think I'll always remember sort of the anticipation of waiting for the list to hit our inboxes. And then when it did, I think there was like actual screaming in the hallways and everyone showed up with champagne for my boss and it was very exciting. Oh, that's so fun. Do you have a number one tip for writers? Uh, My number one tip for writers is very basic. It's read. Read in your genre. Read everything that's out there. Know where your book fits into the marketplace. There is no better way to teach yourself how to write than to read other people. Aww. I'm so happy you're joining faculty this month. We can't wait to get you all set up and have all these meetings. I had four of them last night and I always go in a little bit nervous. Like, what if I can't think of exactly the right thing to say? But it was just, it was an amazing experience. Like, I think it's so gratifying to be able to talk with somebody and see all the little hidden layers of the work that they didn't notice were there and find the like very specific creative way to go about it. So I hope it feels that way to you too. It feels like normalcy for me, which I enjoy. Yeah. 
I'm very excited to start, especially now that who knows how long it will be until writers' conferences start happening regularly again. And so I'm excited to do some of that work in a safe, remote way. <laughs> yes. Spatially, but not emotionally distant work. <laughs> so you can meet with Rachel at manuscriptacademy.com slash Rachel hyphen Diebel, D-I-E-B-E-L. And we'll link to that in the show notes. Rachel, thank you so much. This was great. Thank you. This was a lovely. So Rachel, thank you so much. Where can we find you online? So you can find me on Twitter at uh, my last name, R-A, so D-I-E-B-E-L-R-A, and then on Manuscript manuscript wish list. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. And not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.